Thank you, Daniel. This uh, week, there was lots of emails going around wondering how the projector was going to get fixed and how it was going to come down from there and what we would use today. And Daniel offered that he would lead worship. And if it meant we were going to use hymn books or overhead projector or handouts, that we would be okay. But everyone pulled through, and it's been a great morning of worship, Daniel. So thanks. I want to begin with a question this morning as we continue in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And the question I want to ask you, and I want you to think about it as I ask you, what is the guiding principle in your life that gives your life meaning and purpose? What's the idea or principle that you orient your life around, that you dedicate and commit your life to? And maybe you're thinking, well, Brad, I don't think I have a guiding principle. I haven't taken the time to think of one specifically. But I want to suggest that you do. Even if you don't know that you do, there is a priority or a principle or a a value that you hold as a higher priority than any other. Let me give you some common examples of life-guiding principles. There are those who live by the principle, look out for number one. And their whole life is oriented around that principle. Look out for yourself. Do things that please and advance you over anything else. There are those who live or work for the weekend. Everything they do Monday to Friday doesn't really count. It's what takes place on the weekend is that which is most important. And everything they do during the week is gearing up for the weekend. There are those who live by the principle that he or she who dies with the most toys wins. And so their life is dedicated towards that purpose. Some people's guiding principle in life is having a healthy lifestyle. And so everything about their life is oriented around healthy living. And so I'm sure you could think of some other common life principles. So what is the guiding principle of your life? And how does it impact the way that you live your life? How does it shape your decisions, your priorities, your relationships, and the choices that you make? I was reading this week, actually I heard it on Facebook, uh, about a Christian contemporary musician from the 80s, who I followed, was quite a fan of this person, had all their albums, went to a few of their concerts, and it was very obvious what their guiding principle in life was. It was right in the lyrics of their music. Uh, It was right in the words that they said when they performed a concert. But I kind of lost track of this person. Until just recently on Facebook, I read this post that was talking about the fact that this musician has lost their way. And their lifestyle and their concerts and the lyrics of their music are much different than they were way back in the mid-80s when I was following this person. So I googled them and came across an interview that they had done just recently and really disappointed in some of the things that this person said. I like talking about an author that this person likes. I like his being able to embrace Zen and not be threatened by it. I feel at this point in my life that I can worship in a Buddhist temple just as well as in another kind of church. 
I might as well be in New Mexico looking at the mountains. I don't feel I have to adhere to a certain regimen or routine or dogma. There's a beautiful thing about getting to that stage. You know what? If yoga helps you, if you can embrace Zen and that helps, if that lets you understand God and life and love more clearly, if that helps you on your way, then it's okay. God is bigger than all of this, than doctrine, than dogma. Those things are going to fall away. God's going to outlast all of the institutions and all of the trappings. And as I said, it was disappointing to realize that this person has lost the plot when it came to what their guiding principle was in life when I first became introduced to them in the 80s. And that they have adopted all sorts of other things in their pursuit of God. And and many of us know people who earlier in their life professed faith in Christ, who were, were on fire, who regularly came to church, committed themselves to Christian ministry, and yet at some point fell off the tracks. And they've turned their back on God and the things of God and, and on church. And if you can understand that, if you kind of get the idea of having a guiding principle in life and how that guiding principle should impact your life and the danger of losing focus or sight on that guiding principle, you kind of can understand where we find ourselves in Paul's letter. Paul's been reminding the Colossians about who Jesus is, what they believed in. But now Paul's ready to turn a corner. And he wants them to understand how important it is to follow Jesus in the way that they live their life. That their belief in Jesus would shape the way that they live their life. So turn to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue uh, in Paul's letter. As uh, I've reminded you every week when I've been looking at this letter, Paul's writing from prison. Uh, he's heard about the faith of these young Christians in Colossus from a Papathist, which I can never pronounce his name correctly, who's believed to be the founder of the church in Colossus. And Paul has heard about their faith, but he also has heard that they're facing a threat to their young faith. That there are those who would oppose them and are trying to tell them that their faith in Jesus is not sufficient, uh, it's not adequate, it's not effective. And so Paul writes to these Colossians with a message that's critical for them, it's critical for us to understand. And what Paul wants them to know, as is the theme for our series, Jesus is all-sufficient. He's all-satisfying. Believers are made complete in him. And so Paul affirms the the Colossians that their faith is genuine, that the message of the gospel that they have heard and have received is the full gospel message. And a couple of weeks ago, when Daniel has just read it for us again, against the threat of this opposition, Paul confidently and boldly lays out the defense, the reasons for the supremacy of Jesus That Jesus is supreme. He is Lord over creation. And he is Lord over the church. But now we come into the passage for today. And we launch ourselves immediately into the middle section of Paul's letter. And right away Paul gives us the theme verse for the whole letter. And then he confronts us with a very serious challenge. 
Belief that doesn't impact behavior is useless. There has to be a connection between what we say we believe and the way we live our life. Let's hear what Paul has to say to them in this passage. So at Colossians 2, uh, beginning at verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over, uh, triumphing over them by the cross. What a passage. And I said to someone last week, one of the pitfalls that I often fall into is when I put a sermon series together and ask others to join me and we break the passage into chunks ahead of time. It means I have to actually cover the full passage. And some passages that we've gotten into are ones that easily could be three or four messages. And this is definitely one of them. But I have to finish this chunk because Ben's taking the next passage next week. And so the challenge that I had this week is how can I make everything in this passage something that you can remember that can be challenging to you uh, and not have us get lost in a lot of the details that are in this passage. And so what I've done is I've, I've narrowed this passage down to a two-part question. And I'm hoping that you can walk away easily being able to answer that question. Some of you who want to get lost in the, in, in the details with me, um, you, you're probably going to be a little disappointed because there's stuff that we just can't go too deep into. But let's see if we can answer that two-part question with a couple of side comments at the end uh, and uh, see if we can do this passage justice. And so verse 6 is the theme verse of the whole letter. And in the first part of verse 6, oh, I never even told you the question I was going to answer. As Christians, what should the guiding principle be in our life? And how should that guiding principle impact the way that we live our lives? So that's the two-part question. And Paul answers the first question in about the first five or six words in verse 6. And at the first part of verse 6, Paul summarizes really everything that he's been talking about in the first section of his letter. Reminding the Colossians of something that's already taken place to them. And in fact, what Paul's saying to them, remember what you first believed. 
The truth of the gospel that you have received. The truth of the gospel which Paul summarizes in a very simple but profound statement. Christ Jesus is Lord. It's a title. Christ Jesus is Lord. That title Lord is a simple but profound word. And we're kind of at a disadvantage trying to understand it from our vantage point. We don't use the word Lord very often in our culture. Other than at church. Sometimes I think we throw the word Lord around, failing to grasp the significance of what we mean when we use that title, Lord. The title Lord comes from the Greek word kurios. It was a word that was originally used to describe the authority a slave owner had over their slaves. So Lord was someone who had authority over another person. But there was other words that were used to describe that kind of authority that a slave owner had over a slave. So the word kurios took a different nuance. And it started to refer to someone who not only had authority over somebody else, but who had that authority because it was part of their very identity. Their authority wasn't accidental. It wasn't arbitrary. Rather, they deserved, because of the very essence of who they were, to have that authority. And so the curios, the Lord, was one who had authority over somebody. And that authority was deserved. But it had a further nuance. It was often used in relation to someone worshiping or relating to their God through prayer and, and sacrifice. And so we have the Lord being someone who has authority over other people, and they deserve that authority. It's, it's, it's part of their identity, and you can have a relationship with that Lord. That sounds a lot like what Daniel just read to us. That, that Jesus is Lord. He is supreme. He has all authority. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord over the church. And this is what Paul wants to remind the Colossians. Remember what you first believed. Christ Jesus is Lord. That's what led you to put your trust in him. It is so important that you ground yourself, yourself in, in these foundational truths concerning Jesus. And Paul would say the same to us. Christ Jesus is Lord. Remember what it was, people here at Auburn, what led you to first believe. We need to ground ourselves in the foundational truths concerning who Jesus is. You see, we don't mature in our faith by adopting cutting-edge methodology and how we run the church. We don't, we don't, we don't mature by, by getting to the next level of, of theology class. We mature by going deeper in Christ. Deeper and deeper in the lordship of Christ. And so what was the guiding principle to be for the Colossians? What's the guiding principle 
to be in our life if we are a follower of Jesus? Well, here it is. Christ Jesus is Lord. He is our everything. So what's our guiding principle? Christ Jesus is Lord. Answer to the first part of the question. How should that guiding principle impact or shape the way that we live our lives? And Paul is going to tell us in the second part of verse 6, and we're going to see it through the rest of our passage, that our conduct must be consistent with his lordship. That the way we live our life every day must be with the lordship of Jesus informing every aspect of our life, every aspect of what we do. And so we move into the second part of verse 6. And Paul gives us a metaphor to answer the second question, to describe what it looks like to live out this guiding principle, how this guiding principle should impact our life. And he uses a metaphor that unfortunately is a little bit lost in the NIV translation. And in the NIV, as I read it, it says, continue to live your lives in him. The ESV and other translations preserve the original literal meaning of the word that Paul uses here. Helps us better understand the metaphor. Paul says, continue walking around in him. Walking around. I like that metaphor. Because I can get my small brain around it. I I understand what it means to walk. I think we all understand what it means to walk. It's a common, everyday, regular, universal human experience. No matter where you live, when you lived, you at least have an understanding. If not, you have experienced walking. In fact, we do it without even thinking. I think that's Paul's point. He's saying Jesus is supreme. He is Lord over everything. Lord over creation. Lord over the redeemed. Walk in him. Walk in him. May what our Christian life is about be as regular and universal an activity of human existence such as walking. But do it in him. Walk in Christ. That's how the guiding principle that Christ is Lord is to impact our life. We are to walk in him. Walk in Christ. What does that mean? To walk in him. Paul uses that phrase quite often, in him. What is he referring to? Paul has this understanding that those who have put their faith in Jesus exist in a very specific location. It's not a physical location, it's a, it's a spiritual location. Theologians describe it as a sphere. That, that we believers exist in the sphere 
of Jesus. And so when Paul says walk in Christ, what he's saying is walk every day with Jesus being the very existence, uh, uh, very reality of our existence. But what does that mean? Maybe that doesn't answer it enough for you. Well, I came across an illustration to, to reinforce what Paul is saying here that I thought was really powerful. It's not perfect, so you have to forgive me. I was going to bring a prop, but I realized that what they wanted dollar-wise for this prop to use for about a one-minute illustration seemed a little expensive, and I didn't really have a use for it afterwards. So I'm just going to have to describe it. There was a day back uh, when I was in grade school that my teacher let me take a hamster and a cage home for the weekend. My family were not pet people. My dad did not like any animal that would be in the house. But my parents let me bring this, uh, probably my mom let me bring the hamster and cage home. And as you can imagine, the hamster got out. And for most of the weekend, we were looking for this hamster. My mom's biggest concern is, oh no, it's going to get crushed by somebody. We're going to lose it and we're not going to be able to return it. My dad, if you were to know my dad's biggest concern was there was going to be hamster dirt, and that's what he would have called it. There was going to be hamster dirt all over the house. If I had known that there was such a thing as a hamster ball, does anyone know what a hamster ball is? I had no clue what a hamster ball was until I read this illustration. And I went to Walmart and actually looked at one. If I had had one back in grade school, maybe I could have still had a hamster. But what this hamster ball, it's a ball, and you open it up and you stick your hamster inside. And then you close it, and it comes with a stand, and the hamster can spin around until he's tired. Uh, in wherever you put it, or you can take the stand off. And the hamster can bomb around your house and go wherever he wants, but he can only get under certain things because the hamster ball stands about this high. And he's not going to get too far. You're not going to lose him. And there's not going to be hamster dirt all over the house. And so this illustration uh, that this commentator used and, and apologized for, for the incons- imperfections of this illustration is imagine that when you put your belief in Jesus, you are placed in this big plastic life-sized ball that in some crazy way is the person of Jesus. Okay, And I realize if you're claustrophobic, this is a horrible, horrible thing to imagine. And uh, it really, really ruins all the one another's of Scripture when you're living your life inside this little ball. But... Beyond that, I think it's a really powerful illustration. Because what would it mean if we lived our life in a giant Jesus ball? It would mean that wherever I go, whatever I see, whatever situation I encounter, I see it through this clear plastic ball. That the person and truths concerning Jesus interpret the things that I see. But it means more. It means that no matter where I go, I'm surrounded by this clear ball. Jesus goes everywhere with me. But it means even more. 
It means that if I'm at work in Toronto and you're at school in Peterborough and you're on holidays in the United States, in some mysterious way, we're all in the same place. And it means even more. It means if I bump my Jesus ball into somebody else, they bump into the person of Jesus. When I interact with somebody else, they in a way are interacting with the creator of the universe. That help you understand this idea of walking in Christ? That Christ Jesus is Lord is to be the guiding principle of our life. And what is it like to have that guiding principle impact the way that we live our lives? Paul says, continually walk around in Jesus. He is supreme. He is Lord. He is ruler of over all things. He is our everything. He interprets our reality. He surrounds us. He connects us. And when people see us, they see Jesus. Walk in Christ. And in our passage, and I said, here's one of the areas where we're not going to take the time to to go into detail. Paul reinforces this metaphor of walking in Christ by giving us four characteristics of what it looks like to walk in Christ. And, And three of them are in the passive voice. Meaning these are things that God's doing in us. And then the last characteristic is one that's active. It's, 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 it's uh, where we are taking part uh, fully. And in the end of verse 7. So he says, continue to live your lives in him. Continue to walk around in him. Rooted. Meaning that God roots us in our faith. And built up in him. There, there's a construction program going on in our life. God's at work building us up. Strengthened in the faith. God is strengthening strengthening us in and by our faith as you were taught. And then we come to the, the one where we participate in overflowing with thankfulness. That we see all that God is doing in our life and we can't contain it. We are overwhelmed. We are bubbling over with gratitude and thankfulness. And that's a mark of a healthy spiritual life. That's the mark of someone who is is not going to easily fall prey to those things that would knock us off our track. That those are the marks of a person who uh, is not going to look for fulfillment elsewhere. Overflowing with thanksgiving. And then we move into verse 8. So Paul's answered the question for us. The guiding principle in our life, Christ Jesus is Lord. How does that impact our life? Walk in Christ. Continually walk in Christ. But in verse 8, we come across a caution. A caution that I wish that musician that I was talking about at the start of the message had paid heed to. Paul says, beware of anything or anyone who will detract, derail, or turn your attention away from the guiding principle in your life. 
And there are things, there are voices, there are people who will try to distract us away from the guiding principle of our life as a Christian. There are passions, there are pursuits, there are priorities, there are other religious voices, there are those who will outright lie to tempt us to get out of our Jesus ball and to push it in front of us far enough away that we don't have to be thinking about it all the time. Or tempt us to exit the Jesus ball and put it up on the shelf as others have done. And Paul gives a very strong caution. In verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. The Greek word there literally is, Do not let anyone take you hostage. Hijack you. It might seem like an odd word for Paul to use, but it was a real word and a real worry for the Colossians. Because in their day, there was people Slave traders who would go especially into small rural towns and they would hijack. They would take people hostage and sell them elsewhere into slavery. And so when Paul says, don't let anyone take you hostage, he knew the serious, they would know the seriousness of which Paul talked. Maybe that doesn't really scare us a whole lot. Let me make it a little more real for us. I would never forgive myself when Jack, my youngest, walks from our front door to the end of our driveway waiting for the bus. I would never forgive myself. Jack, or Graham, sorry, I'm not as worried about you. I think you could fight your way. <laughs> but there was a day. But mostly for Jack right now, because he's, he, he's young enough, and I worry that something could ever happen to him from the end of the driveway and the door to the bus. That if I turned my attention away from what was taking place at the end of the driveway, someone could abduct him. And, and there's people that do that, even today, here. So I do everything in my power to make sure that I see that Graham, or sorry, that Jack gets on the bus. Do you understand that? Don't let anyone or anything hijack you. Because all those false voices are just that. They are false. They are hollow. They are deceptive. They are empty. They lead to nowhere. They don't deliver what they promise. Is anyone or anything influencing you away from the guiding principle in your life? Are you in any way allowing anything or anyone to cloud God's truth and deaden God's conviction in your life? These are real questions. Are you? Is there? What are those things in your life that are taking your focus and are derailing you from the truth that Christ Jesus is Lord? And that's not an option. He is Lord. The option is whether you commit to his lordship. What are those things are taking your eyes off that? And Paul would say, get rid of them. Deal with them. Don't dance with them. Don't play around with them. This is serious business. 
I read the theme, the title that we have for this series. And it says that Jesus, our all-satisfying, our all-sufficient Savior. Nothing new. We've heard that here before. And Jesus invites us to his banqueting table. I think we understand what that means. If that's true, then why do I and you so often turn our back on the banqueting table and eat the slop that this world has to offer? The Bible tells us that fullness and and being complete is found in Jesus. And when we cram ourselves on the world's bus that's heading in the other direction into nothing. As if that is going to give us fullness and fulfillment. Well, the rest of the verses in our passage, Paul covers one last thing that I want to say. And he says, understand this. Grasp this. Live this. Walking in Jesus is the fulfillment and the being complete that we all yearn for. It's the life that we were meant to live. In verse 9, Paul makes a very, very bold statement. One that would cripple those that wanted to de-emphasize the sufficiency of Jesus. We've already heard it before. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Jesus is God. We see everything about God in the person of Jesus. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. But then in verse 10, he says something else really remarkable. Look at verse 10. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. We can have fullness too. So Jesus is full of God, and and, and there's this fullness that we have in verse 10. But but it's not not an equivalent comparison. Paul's not saying that, that, that Jesus is filled with deity, and we are filled with Christ. No, he says, we are brought to fullness in Christ. You notice the difference? Ever sat on a beach and you find a kid's pail? And invariably that pail has a hole in it. And so you dip it in the water and you pull it out and what happens? The water pours out. And so we find another pail or a pitcher and we dip it in the water and we, we keep pouring it into this pail, but it never stays full. It constantly drains out. But you know, there is a way that you can fill that pail. That's by immersing it in the lake, in the water, and keeping it there. That's just like us. Jesus is the lake, filled with deity, And our life is that broken pail. Sinful, broken. And we pull it out and we try to keep filling it with all sorts of different things, but it keeps emptying. Paul's saying if you want to keep it full, keep it in Christ. Immerse it in Christ. And Paul says something even more remarkable. That's already taken place. 
that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought to fullness. We are made complete. We don't need anything else. We don't need to pursue anything else. We don't need to look in any direction. Walking in Christ is the fullness that we all yearn for. And it's yours if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and walk around in him. And how is it possible the last verses of this passage explain it for us? And there's a lot there, about five sermons worth of material. But it really boils down to three things. Three things that you need to remember to constantly hear. Jesus Christ is our sole sufficiency for salvation. That his death and resurrection is the means by by which God has reconciled the world. Secondly, God offers us complete fullness and forgiveness in what Jesus has done. He has paid our debt. The list of our sins and offenses has been wiped clean because of what Jesus has done for us. And third, I love verse 15, and with this I'll land. Sorry, Daniel, I'm running a bit late here. But in verse 15, something is described that no one else on earth sees. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, no one else sees this. But I believed to some extent the angels did. And they looked down from heaven at what was taking place what, to see what the end result was going to be regarding Satan's rebellion and his minions against God as Jesus hangs there on the cross. And here's the third point that Paul wants us to understand here. Is it because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, those powers and authorities that are arrayed against us are routed by Christ's triumph. And on that cross, the angels are looking down, and as he hangs there, and he's about to give up his life, and he shouts out with triumph, it is finished. The angels see the end result. Those powers and authorities are defeated, they are conquered, they are vanquished, and there's coming a day where they will be eliminated. We do not have to fear the powers and authorities of this world, because Jesus has all power. And he is the only power we need. Christ Jesus is Lord. People walk in him. Daniel.